Uh, before we start, uh, I'll mention that this, this passage involves a lot of wine, <laughs> this wine literally and uh, symbolically, so I will refer to it a lot. And if alcohol is something that causes you difficulties, please be aware of that. And um, there are people that you can talk to, and I encourage you to do so if that's the case. However, if wine is something that you enjoy, uh, please come and visit us in South Australia where we have the best wine in the world. <laughs> Kim and I just celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary. And our... Thank you. <laughs> our wedding was a, a beautiful celebration that many of you here today shared with us. In fact, I remember Dean organised a bus and drove a busload of people from the church uh, to the venue uh, before he then conducted the ceremony. Uh, but it didn't all go as planned. Uh, in fact, it didn't go as planned at all at the start of it. The bride was an hour late to the wedding. <laughs> And it could have been chaos before the ceremony even started. But rather than the anxiety and the impatience that you might expect, the delay to the service actually created a really beautiful moment where people could catch up and have fellowship without the pressure of time of what's coming next. It just created a beautiful time of fellowship together. And what could have ended up in a disaster ended up as a blessing. And today we look at another wedding that could have turned to chaos, but becomes a beautiful moment of Jesus' self-revelation, a moment where he reveals more of his plan to bring about a new kingdom, which, Jesus, which that's what Jesus does. He meets us in chaos, and he brings about something new and something good as we enter into the reign of his kingdom. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do reveal yourself to us, that you reveal yourself to us in many ways, that you reveal yourself through your word and even through stories like this where you turn water into wine and bring about celebration at a wedding. And Lord, as we look at this story today, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would continue to reveal more of yourself and more of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that this would be all of you and none of me as I speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the second in our series in the Gospel of John. And we come to a section in John that's all about the new replacing the old. We see the old purification replaced by the wine of God's kingdom. We see uh, Jesus' presence replacing the temple and the old ways of worship. We see the old water from Jacob's well being replaced with Jesus' living water. Each a symbol of God doing something new, bringing something new. And in each, Jesus himself is the agent of renewal. He provides the wine and will become what the wine represents himself. He is the temple, and he is the living water that wells up to eternal life within us. And each of these events has a prophetic representation. And so in our passion, passage today, when the evangelist says this was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory, I think it's important that we read the passage in the context that it is a sign. 
I mean, most of Jesus' miracles reveal something of who he is or something about his kingdom. And the wedding feast in Cana is no different to that at all. Uh, Referring to this passage, Scott McKnight says, the sign then is a tactile, palpable experience of the presence of God. And it asks you and me to answer the question of questions. Who is Jesus? And this approach is helpful when looking at any sign or miracle, but especially one that is overflowing with allegory and imagery. So as we come to this passage today, we come with an expectation and a curiosity, and we keep asking as we read, who is this Jesus? What is this story telling us about who he is? As a side note here, I'm super excited about our theme for this year that Andrew introduced last last week, All Things New. And our theme for last year was goodness, with our definition of goodness being that something is good if it is in the order and the intention that God created. And now for something to be in God's intended order, it needs to be sustained in its original state or it needs to be renewed restored or redeemed to align with God's rule and his purpose. And the ultimate picture we see of this renewal of goodness is in Revelation chapter 21. This is the picture of God's kingdom fully realized. This is his order and intention for the world complete. And this is what it looks like. Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. What a great picture we have there of the end game of God restoring his goodness. This is what the reign of Jesus looks like. This is what we hope for and allow the Spirit to work in us as he makes all things new. But did you notice that in this celebration of God's presence, it's described as his people joining with him in a marriage analogy, with a renewed church as a beautifully dressed bride, and a little earlier in Revelation, there is a description of a wedding feast where God is united with his people. And in light of this, it seems significant that Jesus performed his first sign at a wedding celebration. So in John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. This analogy of a wedding is really rich in meaning. There's the idea of a covenant or a promise. There is the inauguration of a new life arrangement. There is an increased intimacy and security. And there is a community partaking in the celebration. 
These are all important aspects of a wedding, but they are all important aspects of the kingdom of God. And in fact, this analogy of a a wedding is not uncommon to describe God's relationship with his people. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Uh, In Hosea, Israel is portrayed as an unfaithful spouse where God remains faithful. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of a day that would come when God would rejoice over his bride like a bridegroom. And many see Song of Songs as a picture of God's relationship with his people using marriage as an analogy. And in the passage that Molly just read to us in John chapter 2, it involves a wedding. And in light of this use of marriage as an analogy in scripture, it seems of significance that Jesus chooses a wedding to do his first miracle, especially acknowledging this focus on renewal. But at this wedding celebration, there's a risk of it stalling or all going sour. The wine had run dry. Verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this would have been a huge embarrassment for the family hosting the wedding. Uh, Weddings in this culture were very different to what we understand weddings to be. The celebrations likely went for a week, and there would have been feasting and drinking and all sorts of partying. And for the hosts to run out of wine would have been a terrible embarrassment, and it would have been a cause for shame in an honour-shame culture. And it seems strange, though, that Mary involves Jesus in this situation. As the story goes on, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In the midst of this joyous affair at Cana comes the possibility of great embarrassment. The host has run out of wine. And this had a greater shame than my wedding running late. It was a disaster. And you can almost sense the anxiety levels in Mary as she approaches Jesus. But I wonder what she expects him to do. Perhaps she was hoping for a practical solution, that Jesus would get his disciples and the servants and they'd go down to whatever the local bottle shop was in Cana and they would come back with a few barrels of wine. Maybe she had an inkling that he had the power to perform a miracle and was kind of pushing him and nudging him to do something miraculous. It's difficult to know, but in any case, Jesus' answer is interesting. He says, my hour has not yet come. I mean, what does that have to do with the wine? What does that have to do with the problem that's at hand? He says, my hour has not yet come. But elsewhere in the gospel, the statements about Jesus' hour refer directly to his death or his resurrection. And I imagine that what Jesus is really saying to his mother, whether she understood it or not, is, I know they have no wine. I know that I could provide wine for them. And even that I myself would become the wine to them. But I cannot do that until I'm crucified and resurrected and the Holy Spirit has come upon them. What I find interesting here too is that Jesus distances himself from the authority of his earthly mother. We know that Jesus saw his authority as coming from heaven, from his heavenly father. But he is also gracious to his mother here 
in meeting the need that Mary raises. Who is this Jesus? He is one willing to enter into our chaos, willing to enter into our concerns and to provide. And though the hour of his death has not yet come, the time for his first sign has come, a sign that he performed to foreshadow his death and resurrection, his cosmic rescue from chaos. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Well, there is a lot in that. But let me just draw out a few points that stand out to me. Uh, the first is that Jesus has authority and power over nature. When we ask this question, who is this Jesus? The answer is he is one who has authority over nature. John has already told us in chapter 1 that Jesus was present and active in the creation of the world. And now he's demonstrated that authority again. Just like he can calm the storm or he can multiply loaves and fishes, he can transform water into wine. He has authority over the physical environment. And I love the way that Ben Witherington puts this, quoting a 17th century author. He says, The modest water saw its God and blushed. The modest water saw its God and blushed. There's also an element around blood and covenant that I see here. I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that the wine is symbolic of Jesus' blood especially considering his reference to his hour and the use of purification jars to bring about the wine. And when Jesus initiates the practice of communion, this is what he says when he shares the wine with his disciples. It says, in the same way after, cupper, he, after supper, he took the cup, which would have been filled with wine, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Jesus chooses a celebration of a new covenant, a wedding, to signify the new covenant, a new way of life and relationship between God and humanity. And I might be reading too much into this, but I wonder if the running out of wine shows the temporal and limited nature of our human religious efforts. If we provide our own wine, it runs out. In our own efforts at salvation and righteousness and purification, we fall short. But Jesus fills the religious vessels with himself if the wine represents his blood. And then the water that's used to temporarily purify has been replaced by Jesus' blood that cleanses our sins once and for all. The water used to temporarily purify has been replaced by Jesus' blood that cleanses our sins once and for all. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us. The water in this story in the jars is for washing, and the wine is for fellowship and for celebration. And again, we see the move from old to new being a move from works to grace, from ritual to relationship. And this is a prelude to the clearing of the temple. Not only does Jesus replace the old rituals of purification, he radically changes the way in which we worship, and he makes a way for us to freely enter God's presence. A way to enter his presence without ritual cleansing or the sacrifice and the blood of animals. He has opened a new and living way by his blood once and for all so that we can enter into God's presence with confidence. And if the running out of wine shows the limits of human endeavor for righteousness, then the abundance of new wine should show the sufficiency of Jesus' grace. Human religion is confined by scarcity. We just can't do enough. But Jesus' kingdom is about the abundance of his gracious presence, his presence that does not run out, his presence that will go on into eternity, his presence with us that is sweet and rich and enjoyable. If we were to calculate how many bottles of wine Jesus turned the water into, it's probably between 900 and 1,000 bottles of wine. It's a lot of wine that is not going to run out. And this shows the distinct difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, where the law was insufficient, where the law would run out, the blood of Jesus made a way. In Romans chapter 8, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That is, by his blood, represented here by the wine. And he saves the best for last. Now why serve the best wine first? Uh, because you want to taste the good wine while it's fresh at the start of the evening. Uh, in this story, it tells us that, that some people drink too much and then you, you don't want to serve them the good wine after that. Uh, I like to serve the good wine first because you don't want to open the good wine later and not finish it and waste the good wine. It makes sense to serve the good wine first. Although here, Jesus' wine is served last. Why is this? Because Jesus' wine is new and it is better. It is replacing the old and it is better. The new is even better than what was. Jesus' new covenant is so much better than what went before him, the law, the temple sacrifices, the religious rules and rituals. And the fact that Jesus' wine is served at the end, I think is also symbolic. Jesus had already said, my hour has not yet come. And I think this is some symbolic. We could almost say in this story, his wine has not yet been served. And for us who live in the new covenant, his hour has come. His wine has been served. We can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can come into his presence and experience his grace, his healing, his transformation. And we can share that with others. We can share that with the world. 
But I think it also gives us a sense of anticipation that the best is still yet to come. We live in a kingdom that has come, but is yet to come. And when it comes in full, it will be better than anything we have experienced. It will be better than anything we can hope or imagine. We can look forward to Jesus coming again as king, and he saves the best for last. Why at the end? Well, this is pointing to Jesus, who is the culmination of God's plan to redeem humanity, to bring into reality a new kingdom, a new heavens, a new earth. And the one who will be at the end, the one who will reign forever, the one who is the end of the story, says in Revelation chapter 21, Behold, I am making everything new. Friends, the best wine is yet to come. So what does this story tell us about Jesus? Well, for me, I think it reveals that he is in the business of making old things new of bringing dead things to life, of bringing joy where there was chaos and celebration where there was a fear of shame. He is making all things new. And this is Jesus' nature. It is his character to redeem, to restore, to bring life. And just as Jesus poured himself into dead religion, symbolically in this story, represented by his wine in the religious jars, He is waiting to pour himself into any emptiness in your life. And he places in your heart that need his presence. And when his presence does fill your heart, you will experience the richness and satisfaction and abundance that is associated with good wine in this story. Now, I believe that Jesus, who's in the nature of doing new things, is doing something new at Ride Baptist Church and Ride Salvos. And I think this is a good time for us to think about what we have done religiously or out of habit. What are the water jars in our church that Jesus wants to fill with his new wine? Where does he want to bring about transformation and renewal in our community? And I think that this is an opportunity for us to ask afresh, What new things is Jesus doing in our midst? What is Jesus restoring in our midst? What does Jesus want to transform in our community? I mentioned that I'm excited about our new theme for this year, and Andrew joked last week uh, that it fit well with me moving on. But I have to say that my excitement about God doing something new in this community actually affirms to me that this is God's timing for me to move on. I mean, Jesus said that you don't put new wine in old wineskins. So it's with confidence that God is doing something new in this place, in this community, that it seems the right time for me to pass the baton on to others. And as the wine of the new covenant is built upon and completed by the water jars being filled with Jesus' wine, God will call and raise up leaders that he will use to build upon and complete what he has used me for here. And in doing so, he will bring a new richness, abundance, presence and celebration just like he did at the wedding in Cana. And I hope and pray that I have been a vessel holding the wine of Jesus' kingdom and that I have been offering it to you to partake in his presence. 
But for Jesus to do something here, I think it's time for new vessels. And you might be one of those vessels as you serve our community, our church family, and our Lord. So my prayer is that for each of you in this next season, that you would have a greater revelation of who Jesus is, that you will taste and enjoy the sweetness and richness of Jesus' presence and the renewal that he brings about as he brings a new season for you, for our church, and for our community. Let me pray. King Jesus, we thank you that you are in the business of redeeming and restoring, bringing about new that was better than the old. And Lord, we pray that over this church. Lord, we ask that you would bring about what you have planned for a new season, a new season of goodness, a new season of your presence, a season that is rich, a season with abundance, a season where your kingdom grows and replaces the old. In Jesus' name, amen.